What happens when you get some of the most senior leaders we have to share his or her advice on a one-on-one -on -one basis? I'm Michael Sears. I used to brief flag officers as part of my job. Now the tables are turned, and we're letting some of the most senior naval, military, and civilian leaders we have brief us. Welcome to the Flag Brief. Stay with us. I'm in conversation with General John Whistler, United States Marine Corps retired. General Whistler began his career as a combat engineer commanding at every echelon. As a general officer, he was the commanding general's second force service support group, forward, and second marine logistics group, third marine expeditionary force and commander Marine Corps Forces Japan and commander U.S. Marine Corps Forces Command and commanding general of FMF Atlantic. Closer to home, General Whistler is the Distinguished Chair of Leadership at the Stockdale Center, and he also serves as a consultant in leadership development, team building, and strategic planning. Welcome, my friend, General John Whistler. Michael, it's great to be with you today, and uh, thanks for what you do for uh, both the Stockdale Center, but also for the naval profession. And of course, I can say the same. Let's jump into this, General. We've heard some senior leaders talk about what junior leaders need to do to shape the future of the Naval Service and truly be foundational to institutional excellence. The what is sometimes easy. Could you elaborate perhaps on the how? Sure, Michael. First of all, I'm not sure that identifying the what is always easy because I think that you have to properly identify the what. But identifying uh, the what is, I would say, easier than defining the how. I think the how of being foundational to institutional excellence starts with understanding that institutional excellence goes beyond individual competence. I think that many young leaders, especially newly commissioned officers, believe their path and their contribution to being foundational to institutional excellence starts with building their competence in their chosen part of the naval profession. Whether it's to fight a ship or employ a platoon to engage another aircraft or employ any of a number of individual skills that are part and parcel to the naval profession. It's been my experience that those that contribute most to institutional excellence truly understand that their commitment to being selfless servant warrior leaders is their true gambit for being foundational to institutional excellence. So when you say competence, you're talking about a heck of a lot more than just the skill, the ability to pull a trigger, press a button, uh, understand what sea state we're in. You're talking about more than that such as compassion and courage, right? And, and how do you draw a line between compassion for the individual and fidelity to the institution? Yeah, Michael, that selfless servant warrior leader, that, that what is really built on competence, compassion, and courage. But those three things to inspire the people that they're privileged to lead. You see, it's combining that competence, compassion, and courage. It's that inspiration that truly matters. If you inspire the people you lead, the only control you need is to exert them to achieve the things that really are foundational to institutional excellence. Being a compassionate leader, Michael, is really important. It's important in many, in many senses. It's important in the sense that every great leader that I've served or served alongside loved the people that they led. 
And that's really what compassion means. It means love in the people you lead. But it's love not, not exclusively as an emotion. It's love as an action. And that action is doing whatever it takes to ensure that the people you lead become the best versions of themselves. And Michael, sometimes that means tough love, holding them accountable to the standards you expect, the standards the institution expects. To be honest, to be forthright, to be direct in every circumstance, but to do it without compassion, without breaking their spirit. That's the art of leading with compassion and upholding the standards of institutional excellence. You know, when I was a young lieutenant, got to my first duty station, and and I would tell you that someone who sort of took me under their wing was a a then gunnery sergeant, now retired sergeant major by the name of Robert C. Caldwell. And Gunny Caldwell, I had a heat stroke at my first duty station. And after that, when I would get one of those great young lieutenant ideas something that I thought was going to spur us on to higher heights as a platoon, he would put his hand on my forehead, always, you know, in private, always maybe back in the, in, you know, in the platoon uh, office. But he put his hand on my forehead and he'd say, geez, Lieutenant, you don't, you don't seem hot, but that idea, maybe that heat stroke's coming back. And it was his way of holding me accountable to the standards. It was his way of sort of being honest, forthright, and direct, of giving me the feedback I needed, being compassionate with me as a young leader, but at the same time, letting me know that that probably wasn't a very good idea and it wasn't somewhere we should take the platoon. I like that. Um, He was not calling you out in front of your Marines. He was uh, doing a compassionate job in telling you, Lieutenant, you might think about this a little bit more. Let me ask you this, General. Our classmate, Colonel Art Athens, in a previous podcast, talked about humility. How do you build and demonstrate a significant level of competence on the one hand and show humility in the process? Yeah, I think that's, I think that's always a challenge and certainly a challenge for young officers who are heading out to the operational forces, to the fleet and the fleet marine force. Michael, I like to think of humility in the C.S. Lewis definition of humility. You know, C.S. Lewis said, humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. You know, as you build your confidence, those young leaders need to be confident in their ability. If you will, excellence without arrogance. Uh, They have to be confident, but not so confident that they're unwilling to seek input from those other leaders that they're around. To seek input on how to be better at their tradecraft to seek it from those that they lead, from the chief petty officers or the staff non-commissioned officers, from the petty officers of the NCOs, and even from the young seasoned sailors or Marines. And I could go through a whole list of of great young Marines from the very beginning of my career. And it seemed that at every level, I had an opportunity as a platoon commander, as I already mentioned, Gunny Caldwell, but, you know, as a company commander, I had a a first sergeant and, and there was a chief warrant officer who was a construction officer. When I was a battalion commander, it was my my sergeant major uh, as a, at the Force Service Support Group and the Marine Logistics Group. It was my sergeant major and and some other senior enlisted. Even at Fleet Marine Forces Atlantic, Sergeant Major Chris Robinson just became invaluable. And in combat, uh, those lessons come from unexpected places. Great young folks like uh, Corporal Armando Gonzalez, who ended up giving his life in combat in OIF one, but but truly did it as that 
selfless servant warrior leader and somebody who who taught me that what it meant to be compassionate, what it meant to be competent, what it meant to be courageous, to, to push beyond the limits of what he had. And there are so many others, Staff Sergeant Ken Pospisil, uh, an EOD tech, uh, Lance Corporal Brandon Laura, an infantryman, different specialties, different skill sets, but all that come back to that, you know, what is foundational to the excellence? And so you put together these ideas, right? But these are the people that live them. These are the people that show them to you. These are the people that allow you to, to really be humble because you see that they're living the exact same example that you are, and they are living that level of competence, and they're living that selfless servant warrior ethos that truly you expect and builds that foundational excellence. You mentioned that loving the people you lead is critical to excellence. But how does a junior officer prevent being overly familiar with their sailors and Marines and still be able to show that love? Yeah, Michael, that's always the challenge, right? Because uh, I, I think sometimes we confuse that idea of compassion, that idea of loving the people with you that you lead with, with the idea of being liked, right? Of being one of the boys, of being right in there in the team with the women and the men that you lead. But I would take, I, I would offer it takes a bit of a different a different look, a little bit of a different focus. Certainly, if you look at it from the perspective that I mentioned, love is an action, not an emotion. That's an important starting place. But probably the best way to guard against that idea of becoming overly familiar is to look at the broader idea of what it means to be a compassionate leader. It's a lot more than that emotion, right? It's a lot more than being accepted and approved of. Being that compassionate leader means treating everyone with dignity and respect, and not only doing it yourself, but demanding it of your subordinates, your peers, and your seniors. And you think about some of the challenges of institutional excellence that have that we have endured here, of of unrest going on in our country, and you you just ask yourself that if all of our leaders at every level had had decided that they would hold fast to that idea of treating everyone with dignity and respect and demanding it of their subordinates, their peers, and their seniors if some of these issues would have taken place. It's about knowing that no one in your organization is more important than anyone else, least of all you. Some have greater responsibilities, but none are more important. I think that's foundational to that idea of compassion, but that doesn't necessarily put you in that position of being overly familiar. It's about knowing everything about all of your sailors and Marines, about their families and their friends and their goals and where they live, their skills, their abilities, their strengths, their weaknesses, sort of why they came into the service, what they want to do when they, when they move on. This demands a personal investment in time and emotion, a sacrifice, because once again, this is for everybody that you lead. It's knowing more about all of them than just their rank and their position in the organization. Another aspect of this idea of compassion is providing an environment for every person to excel. Not everybody that you lead is going to have the same capacity for exceptional performance. It's what I call, uh, as a Marine leader, the 70% Marine or the 70% sailor. As Marines, we're blessed to have sailors and Marines work with us. And that 70% Marine or 70% sailor is one who, when they're giving you everything they got, 
is maybe achieving 70% of your best sailor or your best Marine. So your job is to find the right place in the organization for that person, a place where they're challenged to excel, but where excellence is achievable. Not given, has to be earned, but achieved. Certainly part of this idea of compassion is cherishing your time and the time of others. And this is where when you train to the standard and not to time, you can give them back that most valuable resource. You can give them some time so they can be with their families. And more importantly, you can do the things you need to do as a leader to balance your time, to not waste a single minute of what you've got. And then finally, in this idea of traits, if you will, of compassion, is to encourage constructive criticism. Every successful leader has that positive feedback loop for constructive criticism. It's vital. It's vital to have that feedback loop because it encourages innovation and encourages learning. It minimizes that idea of zero defects. You want people to take on things, not only that they know they'll be able to do, but things where they, they, may, they may mess it up, but you can pick them up and dust them off a little bit. And as long as they haven't violated the fundamental aspects of what it means to be institutionally excellent, the institution grows. The institution grows, your organization grows, and it improves. So, and I would offer this isn't even an exhaustive list, but I guarantee you this, if you do all that, A, you don't have time to be overly familiar, but second of all, you won't be overly familiar because your commitment will be to all of the people that you lead. When I was a a brand new platoon commander again, I had a staff sergeant who was an alcoholic and he was beloved by the staff NCOs in in this engineer company. And in those days, and we remember, um, you know, it was authorized to go to the club and have a couple of beers or a few few martinis, uh, whatever you, was your drink of choice if you wanted it. And this guy would go at, at lunchtime and, and he would come back drunk. And after building up some trust um, as a platoon commander, I was finally able to get this staff non-commissioned officer into alcohol rehab. I understand now, looking back on it, two tours in Vietnam, he had some serious post-traumatic stress issues he was working through in his life. Uh, but I, I didn't know any of that then. All I knew was I couldn't, I couldn't trust him to train in the afternoon. But I had to use sort of every one of those techniques. Now, I didn't have them all written down and nobody had helped and shared them with me. But, but it was all about trust, Michael. It was all about trust. Trust being that, you know, that trust factor being your competence times your character. In other words, people believing that you're going to do what's right, not what's easy. That idea of, of courage. And, uh, and I could give you a number of other examples, but, but those are examples of, of how you can, you can have that compassion and you can still not become overly familiar. Let's jump on that last C, that word you just said, courage. When it comes to courage, are you talking about physical courage or are you talking about moral courage? Are you talking about both of them at the same time? Can you give me an example of where that's happened within your career? Sure, Michael. Uh, It is definitely both. I mean, you hit on it right off the bat. And I would offer that your moral courage is in the naval profession is going to be tested far more frequently um, and certainly sooner than your physical courage, unless something very unusual happens uh, in your career. For me, I was very fortunate. Um, And I say that uh, in in a if somebody could get through their entire midshipman career without having their moral courage uh, challenged, I've been good on them. Uh, but I just think that's impossible to, to think that that's going to happen. For me, as a midshipman, 
I saw we were taking a, a quiz and, and uh, I perceived that one of my classmates was trying to cheat off of my paper during the quiz. And as the honor concept uh, provided for me at that time, I had the option to engage my classmate as the first step in addressing his potential honor offense. It caused some friction for sure. Uh, his hackles went up and, and he swore that he wasn't cheating. And I explained to him that it sure looked like it. And, and at the end of that, we, we both agreed that cheating wasn't worth losing the opportunity of graduation and commissioning and serving as a, as a leader in the Naval Service. And what began as a heated discussion, we sort of parted ways with a common understanding. And, and that common understanding was good. And then later on, he came back and he said he was glad that I had approached him. He, glad, he was glad that I had pointed out that, you know, as easy as cheating seemed, it was easier to be caught and easier to have to pay the consequences of bad decision making. Uh, when we got our quizzes back, it was obvious that he hadn't cheated. And that was, a, that was a good lesson for me, right? That was a great lesson for me in moral courage because he had the opportunity to cheat and he chose not to do it. And I had the opportunity to say nothing, but I chose to do it. And that caused some friction for us. And that caused, that caused some challenges for us. And that made things difficult at first. But at the end, it was a great lesson, I think, for both of us. And, and we both remain the best of friends today. Uh, with regard to physical courage, my first experience with physical courage happened three months after I took command of my first platoon. Um, I was involved in a helicopter crash uh, in the ocean between Molokai and Lanai. I say I guess that it was my first brush with physical courage because I certainly didn't feel courageous at the time, but the citation for the award I got for that event cited me for outstanding example and courageous leadership. So I guess in the eyes of the people that I loved, it's an example of physical courage. In that instance, I led two Marines who couldn't swim out of the downed helicopter into a life raft and then swam to accompany a third Marine while he awaited search and rescue helicopter. I would tell you this, the acts of moral courage that led to no one losing their lives in that crash um, are maybe a better part of this whole story. But, but what I will say is that taking those opportunities to do what's right and not what's easy is what will give you that opportunity to employ physical courage, right? It, it's been said that courage, physical courage, is hanging in there one moment longer to do what's right one moment longer. And I would offer that's the same thing for moral courage, to, to hang in there, to have the will to, to do what's right, not what's easy, to, to stay with it one moment longer. Could have easily not approached my classmate. I could have easily said, hey, this is every man for themselves. I didn't do that. And to be honest, I don't know why. And I'm not setting myself up as a heroic leader because, as I said, that's not where I'm going with this, but I do think that more often the time that you take to train your reactions, to react with courage, to understand that your competence, compassion, and courage are the things that combine to inspire the people you lead, I think that's truly, truly where those opportunities for courage matter. Let me ask you to stay with that concept of courage because your story is, is a great one. In my history, you don't find those courageous events. They happen to you. Um, in Bancroft Hall, how can you talk to midshipmen about 
becoming courageous is, you know, if you're, if you're at the gym, you can pump iron. If you're running around the yard for your aerobic uh, health, that's something. But should you go out looking for tight situations, moral or physical situations? How do you train for that? What do you do to build that moral courage that can en- enhance your physical courage down the road day in, day out? Yeah, Michael, that's a great question. And and I think just like the training that you mentioned, right? You know, the big deal when I was a lieutenant was, you know, everybody was trying to get to 300 pounds on the bench press, right? But nobody went in and started at 250 to get to 300, right? You, you start incrementally and you start working your way up. And I, I believe it's the same thing with moral courage. Um, I, I have a saying that I, that I like and I like to live by, and that is the standard you walk past is the standard you accept. And so if you can commit yourself as a midshipman to not walking past a standard, to not walking past a classmate who isn't meeting the standards of institutional excellence, who isn't doing the things they need to do to be that professional member of the brigade. Uh, those are the small things that start you on your way to doing what's right and not what's easy. And doing what's right and not what's easy is the basis for having moral courage. And I would offer is the basis for having physical courage. It's stopping that classmate who just looks like a soup sandwich in a plastic wrapper. And, and in that way, sort of in the, in the Gunny Caldwell, uh, you know, not attacking them as a person, but my experience as a leader, very few, if no sailors or Marines wake up and decide that they're just going to, they're going to be detrimental to, to the unit that day, that they're just not going to play the game. There's something going on in their lives. So that's, that's always a, 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 you know, in my mind, kind of a safe way to start that conversation. You come up and say, you know, hey, Whistler, you, you normally look pretty squared away, but today, holy smoke, your shoes are totally trashed. Your uniform's a piece of junk. Your cover, what, what's going on? What's going on in your life that caused you to, and you may get that pushback like I got from my classmate, but you also may get a, hey, somebody actually cares, A, about what's going on and not exclusively what is causing this kind of behavior. So I think you just start being that person who, um, you know, without crushing the spirit, holds people accountable to the standard and to do that daily. And people understand that you're not going to let them get away with not meeting those those standards of excellence. You're not going to... Institutional excellence matters. And when you do that the first time, it becomes easier the second time. And when you do it the second time, it becomes easier the third time. And then you're going to come across a situation where Certain techniques don't work, and you're going to then have to build another technique. But you start keep putting those tools in the tool bag that allow you to build on that that concept of courage, on the the concept of doing what's right and not what's easy, you know, of building that idea of not walking past a standard, of ensuring that if you do walk past the standard, that it will become the standard that's accepted, and that will that will adversely impact institutional excellence. So we've been talking about developing your competence, your compassion, and your courage in order to inspire. What do you mean by to inspire? And what is an inspirational leader? Michael, that's a great question. I think I think there are two parts to that answer. The first part is an inspirational leader is 
is an individual that both talks the talk and, and walks the walk, right? They live what I would like to call the elements of the warrior ethos, right? They have self-command. In other words, they don't demand that of others and not have it themselves. They don't blow their top. They, they maintain a professionalism about themselves as they demand it of others. They have respect for everybody. And to respect people, you got to get to know them. You got to understand who they are. As I mentioned before, they're the, they're the leaders that, that love the people they lead. They love their comrades. They have a respect for the adversary. And, and, I, and I use this one because certainly as naval, naval officers, there, there is an adversary they will face. But, but there are also adversaries on the sports field. Uh, there will be competition in the classroom. There will be, and you must respect your adversary. You must respect the competition, if you will. In some cases, people will think that their peers are an adversary. And, and while I don't believe that to be the case for any successful leader, um, if people believe that's the case, it certainly tears down their ability to inspire. They must be people who persevere. They must be cheerful in adversity. They must have courage that we've talked about already. They must be patient, patient with themselves, patient with the people they lead, patient with the people that lead them. They must come to that understanding that sometimes the people that lead them actually know maybe a little bit more about the situation than they do. And they've just got to have that trust, right? That respect uh, times character factor that they've built over time. Uh, they must be selfless. They must have loyalty to the people, to the individual, to the humans. But they must also have a fidelity to the mission, a fidelity to the institutional excellence. And then finally, Michael, they have to have a sense of humor. And I think all those things combined, that's what builds that inspirational leader. They need to understand that these leaders can be uh, subordinates. They can be your peers. They can be the people that lead you. For those young men and women that are getting ready to join the fleet or the fleet marine force, they have to appreciate that they must live by these standards of selfless servant warrior leadership, by being competent, compassionate, and courageous leaders. But they must also understand that it has to end up in that inspiration. But they must at the same time understand that inspirational leaders are as different as the people that, that they will lead. Their common trait is their ability, overtly or with quiet commitment, to combine that competence, compassion, and courage to inspire excellence, to inspire personal, professional, and institutional excellence. Not all inspirational leaders are the kind of people that maybe we think about um, as that great coach or that great team captain or that great that leader or that person we've heard speak that was inspirational. Sometimes they're very quiet. Sometimes when they speak, the simple fact of them speaking is when people pay most close attention, is when people understand that because they have that competence, because they have that compassion, because they have that courage, that when they speak, it's time for people to, to listen. And in fact, it's at that moment that they'll be inspired to their best and to be people who really help to establish institutional excellence. General Whistler, competence, compassion, and courage can lead to inspirational leadership. Thanks so much for joining us on The Flag Brief. Thank you, Michael. Always great to be around uh, about you and the great team at, uh, at the Stockdale Center. 
And hopefully this has been a helpful day for you and for some others. You've been listening to The Flag Brief, a series of conversations with senior officers and civilian officials. Thanks for listening. You can find more of our podcasts from the Stockdale Center at RadioStockdale.com.